Hello and welcome back to the In Squash Podcast, episode 196, and I'm your host, Jerry Gibson. Today, uh, she just released an autobiography called All In. We have Laura Massaro, and we talk quite a bit about uh, the autobiography. She's been doing a lot of press, uh, which is great, uh, on the book, so I uh, we tried not to revisit too many of the, the uh, same questions that were discussed during previous uh, podcasts and interviews, but uh, we did get to the nitty-gritty, I think, and we have a really great chat about the book. Uh, quite a quite a, an endeavor for her, and I think quite a cathartic uh, experience for her. She chose to wait, obviously, until she retired before uh, writing the book, and uh, yeah, uh, really... Uh, enjoy chatting with her about it. It's available on her website, lauramassero.co.uk, in various forms. So check that out there. And uh, I know you're going to enjoy our chat about that. We also chat uh, about uh, her working uh, these days with Joelle King and the PSA Tour Finals, which just took place, where Joelle. Uh, played very well getting to the semifinal and uh, we also talk about the state of the game the state of uh, player the relationship these days uh, between player and official uh, we talk a, a fair amount about that and uh, so much more uh, i know you'll enjoy this episode 196 uh, of the In Squash podcast, and uh, incidentally, uh, we're back. Uh, I've been on a bit of a hiatus. Uh, been a little bit busy with work, uh, but we have uh, summer uh, holidays coming up, and we're going to use that to gain uh, some really good momentum uh, going forward. We already have uh, some good episodes lined up, so we're hoping to get those out uh, very soon. But today, it's all about uh, Laura Massaro. The book is called uh, All In, an autobiography. And uh, you're going to really enjoy this, episode 196. Well, it's great to, great to see you. Were, I think it was about maybe a year. No, not a year. It would have been over a year ago, I think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Your debut on my uh, podcast. Yeah. Yeah, it was um it was probably but it was definitely I'm not even sure if it was around it was my retirement. It was pre-COVID. Um yeah. because I uh I was gonna mention this later, but uh you you uh, I want to say thank you so much uh for that. La- it was about this time last year because I remember it well. It was me and my daughter are uh, were living here uh while my wife was traveling and uh, uh you gave me the uh the, the inspiration. I was following your your at-home quarantine training with your dog. <laughs> yeah. Because I have the same, almost the same. Your dog looks a lot like my dog. Um, uh, it's a lab yeah. Uh, mix. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's supposed to be Labradoodle, but we got sold a dud, I think, and he's actually just pretty much straight lab. <laughs> but okay. Uh, yeah. No, he's, uh, he's definitely got the poodle nose and the poodle legs, but he pretty much is lab. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a savior in lockdown in terms of getting out of the house every day and kind of, you know, having a bit of a purpose to your day and a structure, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I enjoyed that. I started with, uh, with Nick's, um, uh, with Nick's training. And then I think you came out with yours. It might've been maybe at the same time or a few yeah. weeks thereafter, but uh, yeah. they, were, they were completely different. And uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, neither one was better than the other, but I think they, they both serve the same purpose, but I, yeah. I found yours to be uh, more uh, sort of better for what I needed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, not, not that Nick, you know, Nick's if he's listening. His was he, I like Nick's basketball uh, jump shot. I, I I still use that. Yeah, I uh, I really like I really liked get getting involved with that. I was a bit late to the whole YouTube YouTube uh, game, but I had a couple of other ideas that I wanted to do with it that never never came to fruition. Let's say um, that maybe maybe might do in the future, like bit of an interview style thing and talking about different athletes and different techniques and things like that so I wanted to use it as a bit of a platform for that as time went on but I never got around to it but maybe eventually yeah. I will <laughs> oh, for sure well well what you were doing with with the dog in the in the living room is was <laughs> and my my dog's the same thing but when I do uh when I was doing sort of stuff like uh on the mat when I was doing crunches or you know stuff like that the the dog would come over and start licking my face as yeah I, they love it don't yeah. they when you oh, go yeah. on the floor with them <laughs> yeah absolutely uh now you, you did something and now that we're on that talk you did something with 
a sort of a head-to-head thing with Nick shortly after that. And I didn't quite, uh, I saw what was going on. I saw it on social media and stuff, but uh, wasn't, didn't quite follow it. What, what was that all about? Uh. So, yeah, that was an England squash initiative kind of okay. after the first uh, lockdown to get, um, to sort of encourage people to get back on court, really. Um, so it was a Laura V. Nick challenge, and all you had to do was play a match. So obviously two people, one person was on Team Nick, one person was on Team Laura, play a match, upload the score to, uh, I think it was squash levels maybe. And at the end of the, at the, end of the period of time, the team, team Laura or team Nick won. So it was sort of, um, it was nice because every match had to be team Laura or team Nick and you could have a series with the same person or you could play within a club and a lot of clubs got involved and there were some prizes for the club, most clubs that had got involved. But most importantly, I won. Team Laura right. won. I didn't win because yeah. I'm. I was. I didn't actually. I, I had a couple of games with Danny where he played for Team Danny, and I obviously played for my team. Um, but yeah, Team Laura did everybody proud and came through and took the win from Nick. <laughs> yeah, I did notice that at the end of it all. I, I noticed that your hand was raised. Uh, oh yeah. Was there any sort of a recruiting involved in that, or did did you get sort of did you get involved sort of uh, motivationally with the uh, kind of people that you might have known were on your team or uh, did they reach out Um, to you or anything like that just sort of like encouraging people at my own club to try and get involved with the initiative and upload their scores and obviously I mean it was uh, like like you said I don't think people actually realized that you played for Laura or Nick Um, so some people at my club obviously still had to play for team Nick and um, so it was just encouraging them to do that and and there yeah England squash were the ones sort of doing a lot of the media campaign behind it and um, doing a lot of the videos and they recruited some pro players to play and you know encourage people to get on court and play for the initiative and stuff so it was a bit of a shame because it came to a bit of an abrupt end because of the second lockdown so it meant that um open squash got stopped in that second lockdown so it sort of meant that the last part of the challenge had to become sides and routine based stuff but the idea was to have a have the world like kind of the world or the uk's biggest team match (laughs) <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, it, I think it did gain some traction there for a bit. Yeah, and, yeah it was definitely out there on social media. But uh, again, thanks for for coming on. And um, I just wanted to know now that the squash uh, it's open again. It's open in the UK. People are playing. People where I'm, you know, I'm Canadian. Courts are opening now as well. So how's that uh, impacted you uh, now? Uh, I guess you know you're in retirement, but also obviously uh, it came to light. Uh, and I, I kind of knew before that you, you've been coaching uh, like Joel King and some others, I'm sure. Uh, so how's it been for you uh, to get back on uh, court with a bit of no- relative normalcy, I guess? Yeah, it's been really good. Um, I think the one thing personally that lockdown brought to me was a real sense of retirement. Um, the sort of that, probably that, um, the, the tendency for me in retirement to kind of want to try my hand at everything that got offered to me. And when lockdown happened, it took a lot of the options away. It took sort of exhibition play away. It took traveling for coaching clinics. It stopped going to the States. It stopped kind of a lot of the junior coaching that maybe I was going to take up. Um, So it made me properly retire and kind of get back to what what would be, I guess, like a normal life, although it wasn't normal because it was lockdown, but not traveling as much, not being involved with um, squash every single day of, of my whole life, which is what it had been through, throughout my uh, professional career. So that was really good in the sense on a personal level, obviously really tough for the people that you're working with. And that first initial lockdown, as I'm sure it was with everybody, was really tough because there was just nothing you could do except be at home. Whereas as the second lockdown came around, when we'd opened up a little bit, that sort of seemed to just affect the juniors a little bit more. So the pros were able to access courts because they were professional and it was their job. But a lot of the juniors that you coached and getting juniors together in a group really was a struggle. So I think now things are opening up a little bit more. It's been the first time since probably October 2019 when I retired where I feel like I've got a little bit more structure again and mm. 
got working with the juniors in group settings and working with the pros and talking to them during events, which is great. And the only thing that's really missing is traveling to do some camps abroad, which I've done the last few years, and then also traveling to some PSA events as well. So that's going to be something that that could be in the cards now, though. I mean, um, I guess it just depends on what vaccine you have. I know in, in Canada, yeah, I think you have to be Canadian. Do you have to be Canadian? Uh, I'm not sure, but if if you have the the Pfizer, you you don't even need to quarantine. Great. Well, I'm currently unvaccinated because I'm pregnant. Uh, oh, so oh yes, really of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, I did. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Well, all the best. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so again, just another level of caution, really, from my perspective, yeah. being mm. around. Um, kids and and also traveling on aeroplanes and and it's a totally it's a total per- personal preference in terms of the vaccine but yeah. um when i first got pregnant they were actually recommending that pregnant women didn't get get given the vaccine right um and then as the weeks and months have gone on they've actually now changed that to pregnant women can access the vaccine but I just wonder from a personal perspective, why that, why, how it can change in such a short time. Mm. So it's a personal preference that I'm fit and healthy. I'm, you know, no underlying health issues. I'm going to try and stay safe and keep unvaccinated until a baby comes at least. Yeah. I'd be, if I, I mean, a man, but uh, I'd be quite cynical about that change as well. I I, I feel the same way if I were you. Yeah. (laughs) So the international travel uh, for me personally, getting on flights unvaccinated and traveling to different countries is just a bit of a no-go probably until next year now. So, um, but hopefully for other people, I definitely know, you know, tournaments are opening up, countries are opening up, people are able to travel and do coaching again, which is brilliant. And that's what you want to see, isn't it? Yeah, uh, there seem to be a few more tournaments going on as well. There's one in Washington as we speak. We just finished the tour finals, world championships coming up. So it's sort of uh, uh, coming back to a bit of uh, sort of normalcy, I guess, on tour. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, because we, did, I mean, uh, CIB can only uh, do some punch. sponsorship Yeah. But uh, no, I mean, uh, you've been really uh, busy with since the book, or j- even just before the book launched. And uh, uh, I've listened to quite a few of the podcasts that you've been on already. I think I've, I was a bit late to uh, to to inviting you on mine. But uh, but yeah, it, it's been, uh, you know, All In is the name of the book. And uh, I think it was released in April. Is that right? Or back uh, uh, relatively close to that date or, or is it, it, was on, it was pre-order in April. Um, yeah. so we had a couple of weeks, uh, we had a couple of months of pre-order and then it was officially released on the 1st of June. And here was me, I uh, think the majority of the work had been done in writing the book and that everything would just kind of settle down once the book mm. actually came out. But of course, no, um, you know, podcasts and media and, and book signings and things like that have been amazing. And the support that people have shown has been unbelievable. And the, I have done a lot of podcasts and a lot of media, but it's great because not everybody listens to the same one and it keeps the mm. book relevant and it keeps it, you know, it's been out a month now. So hopefully now there's more people that have actually read it and know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the book and what's in it. So um, yeah, hopefully just, just keeps the book out there and, and, and anyone who hasn't read it or, or bought it yet, um, you know, can, can pick up a copy. Well, full disclosure, I have yet to buy it, but I tried the other day. Uh, and I'm not sure what it is about the Kindle. I couldn't get it on Kindle being in the UAE. It might have been something to do with the way my account was set up, but I'm definitely uh, going to try to purchase it. Uh, either on If I can't do it on Kindle, I'll get it uh, Amazon. I'll get the, uh, the hard copy. Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, I, I think Kindle, uh, Amazon should be available globally, so... I, we yeah. can talk about that after. <laughs> yeah, I tried, I tried, but uh, now I don't want to revisit all, uh, you know, the kind of the same questions that everybody uh, has been asking you already. But firstly, the, obviously, where where was the book? Uh, what was it born out of? I mean, obviously, uh, you mentioned I, I saw on the on the YouTube uh, uh, that there aren't many theme uh, any uh, there could maybe heather mckay has a coaching book that's out there or sarah fitzgerald might have put something up but nothing in the way of uh, autobiography or or that that type of uh, sort of a narrative or uh, 
or, or that type of writing for, in terms of women. So it, it was that's kind of one of the reasons uh, that you, you came up with the idea of writing this book. Yeah, definitely. I, I know there's a few coaching books by squash women, um, but no autobiographies. And, you know, um, I think the main the main reason for wanting to write the book was and I talk about this a lot in the book is just about how many books I've read over my career. And you'll know from watching my YouTube channel how um, how relevant, you know, they were to kind of me and my personality and, and how how influenced I was by reading some of those books within within my throughout my career how how I matured and how my book taste sort of changed let's say I read a lot and there's a list in the book at the back of the book of all of the and books my friend sent me that list uh I'm gonna go. <laughs> yeah it's a long list it's a great um, list and you. and a lot of those not you know a lot of the books that I've read have helped me win matches win tournaments and improved myself you know out, away from squash which you know, I'm a really big believer that if you can really help yourself improve kind of as a person, understand yourself as a person and your personality away from the court, that that's only going to really help you on the court as well. So I wanted to try and write the book to inspire someone, maybe one story in there might kind of help someone win a match or win a title or something along that those sort of lines really. And a lot of the books that I'd read were from really strong women from outside of squash, whether it be kind of long distance swimming or um, Ironman or kind of um, uh, UFC, anything like that just really, really resonated. So hopefully, you know, try to do the best that we could with the book in terms of not making it too squashy, too squash jargon, if you know what I mean. So yeah. for example, I gave a copy to my neighbor yesterday. She's in her eighties and obviously I've lived, I've lived next door to her for like 15 years and she, she said, you know, I didn't understand some of the terminology, but overall, what a great book. And I thought, well, if you can please an 83-year-old who yeah. knows nothing about sport or squash, then you've done a pretty good job of not getting too in, in the nitty-gritty of like point-by-point point squash stuff. So I'm hoping it transitions across sports really well. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, what you said about, you know, having read a book and, you know, having it impact you. I mean, I remember I read uh, uh, James Wilstrup's book, and it was just before I, uh, it was during while I was still sort of playing a little bit competitively. And, and it did, I forget what part of it or, you know, what it was that I read, but it, it certainly sort of motivated me in, in some way to, you know, to, to play better or work harder or you know, try something or, you know, it just it sort of uh, it gave me that uh, sort of motivation to, to improve yeah. and play better. Yeah, definitely. And I hope that that I hope that the book can do that for, you know, particularly juniors, but but anyone really. And the messages and feedback that I've had so far has been that it's been very honest. Um, I think I said on a, I think I've said a few times that kind of I would never have wanted to write this while I was still playing because I've it's it's put me in a, a vulnerable position that I wouldn't have wanted people to know while I was playing. And that's yeah. the reason that you can be totally honest when once you've finished, because that's the whole idea of a book to really tell the truth and tell the ups and downs. So particularly for juniors, I hope it's a good read for, you know, how you can you can still make it to the top with ups and downs throughout. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and uh, you also, obviously, there, there's the female uh, aspect of it. We've got, you know, Jonah's great uh, murder on the squash court. That's it. That's got to be a, a, it's a classic. But uh, okay, yeah, yeah uh, Nick and James and Peter uh, Marshall also uh, have written, but no women. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, in terms of the, the female perspective, uh, obviously, there's a lot to be gleaned uh, in this book. From that regard, and there, I think you did mention the, you know, the, 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 the what what a woman goes through uh, uh, once a month. Uh, that that kind of uh, uh, would probably be something, you know, every obviously every female would would have to deal with. Uh, so, what in terms of that uh, do you think? Uh, you know, just sort of just to sum it up, for for women. I think, yeah, I think a couple of things really in terms of um, really went in depth in terms of the equality that happens with squash and how the PSA have really kind of come together and there's been the merger between WSA, PSA, fighting for equality for the women and parity and prize money. And that's a huge thing when it comes to making leaps and bounds, not only within 
squash but within sport in general and well you you were on the you were the one who sort of got that going weren't you you were on the committee right yeah one of a group of uh one of a group of women on the wsa tour who who were like pushing for that to happen really so I go into a little bit about that and how, you know, now you look back and think it was, you know, a really good decision. Women have got equal prize money. There's squash TV um, for the women as well. And um, there's prize money is higher than it's ever been at the top of the end of the tour, at least. But at the time, no one knew if that was going to be the right decision. Um, No one knew if the men were going to, you know, kind of swallow up the women. Like, you know, no one knew how it would affect our tour. So it it felt like a big leap. And of course, we had wobbles at the time and just talk about that a lot and the process that we all went through of trying to make that happen. Um, So, yeah, the parity and equality side of, of things is one thing. And then... Yeah, from a female perspective, a, a lot about body image, um, weight, um, how you look in an outfit when you're on court, mm. you know, the wobbles of um, kind of, you know, how do you feel? How do you look? You know, being criticized as a woman, whether it's for your weight or how you look when you're a professional athlete, you can sometimes be too, she's too muscly or not muscly enough or she's overweight and constant criticism where people think it's okay to comment on how someone looks because you're putting yourself on a sporting platform. And then adding it. So this this is really interesting. Uh, Did you find when you were on tour there, obviously there is, uh, but did you, was it palpable for you, the sort of the, the difference between the way men and women were treated uh, in that regard on tour? Yeah, I think I, I think I was pe- personally fairly lucky. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that, um, I don't know how to put, I wouldn't say that I changed a great deal over the course of my career. I definitely leaned down as I got a little bit more towards the top end of the game, but it's what you hear people saying and, and whether you hear it about yourself, if you hear people saying it about other people, chances are they're probably saying it about you as well. And mm. the men just simply don't get that. They don't get comments on how they look or how, how, what, what weight they are or, you know, kind of how big they are or anything like that. It's just kind of a bit more standard, whereas the women have to deal with that a lot more. There's a lot more scrutiny on outfits and what you look like and whether it's said outwardly or whether it's said in in internally within conversation you know that there's conversations like that going on and it's it's always going to happen and yes of course there's an element of just accepting that and it's part and parcel but how do you accept it as a woman like how do you get over something like that when you hear someone said that you could do this better or could do that better or you should look a different way or you should wear something a bit different it's it's tough. So it affects everybody in different ways. And, you know, even with a reputation, I wanted to talk about that in the book of being quite mentally strong. It doesn't yeah. always mean that, you know, it's water off a duck's back and you don't ever think about those worries and comments that are made. So if you're not mentally strong or you worry or get upset a lot by that, then it's going to hit really hard. Yeah. It seems to me like I was just thinking as you were saying that, um, like men, the men who get out there and they're vocal and they're mentally strong, it just seems like it. Oh yeah, that's great. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> and then, then you get someone like maybe like a modern, you know, Sarah Jane Perry or, or even a Norhan Gohar, uh, uh, you know, they're both mentally, you know, she likes to talk to the officials a little bit and, and Norhan's, a, you know, uh, strong willed on, on court. And they, they seem to get a little bit of a, you know, backlash for that. Yeah, and it's almost having that that kind of strong personality as a woman is is traditionally probably not seen as a way a woman should behave. But let's be honest, it's it's not you know it's it's professional sport. You're not there to win you know win friends. You're there to win matches, and you do what it takes to win on the day. And I always make the comparison of kind of like you know the arty sort of dancey side of uh, let's say like a ballet or something like that where you get the men who are maybe a little bit more feminine. And then sometimes you get the women who are a little bit more kind of in your face. And I'm not saying masculine with necessarily how they look, but I would have said that probably myself, like I can look and dress in a really nice pink dress, but probably to most people watching was like quite a strong, like masculine type, not masculine is probably the wrong word, but it's an attitude of like, 
yeah tough and that gets associated a little bit more with the men and it's acceptable so you're gonna find in sport that there's probably more testosterone in the women as well as the men and you're gonna find that the women are hard you know I called it a lot in my career as well a lot more hard-nosed and that that is like just the it's sport you know you don't go into sport if you're a soft person yeah well that, that, that's unfairly a male trait isn't it if you're hard he's hard-nosed oh he's a great player yeah if for a female it doesn't seem to uh, translate that way <laughs> it's not a com- it, to a man it's probably quite complimentary and to a woman yeah. to a woman it's probably not and I'm sure it's the same like I said in other areas of like let's say acting dance where you get the you know more feminine males for example mm-hmm. and it's probably the same same but the opposite way around for that sort of uh, that sort of career. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I just wanted to go through the list because, as I mentioned, my my friend uh, Tab Singh, he uh, he sent me the list of books he wanted me to ask you uh, about it. Now, there there's there, there's a Canadian content on there. Jordan Peterson, fellow Canadian, yeah. uh, and he draw he's he's a controversial character. Himself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, you got Jordan Peterson, uh, Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Uh, we've yeah. all read that a great book um you you like tony robbins as well i think there were two or three in there uh he's probably helped you with your financial planning amongst others <laughs> <laughs> that um, was the uh, financial one wasn't on the list but i have read yeah. it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and uh john cavanaugh who you know, conor mcgregor's i think it was a yeah conor mcgregor's uh trainer oh, um, yeah trainer yeah yeah and then there was uh, there was one there um oh yeah which I wanted to ask you about is the, the courage to be disliked. And this is something we, we talk about. I talk about a lot with my friends and it's people who are, who have that courage, who don't care what other people, you know, what they think about them, as long yeah. as they're doing what's right and they're doing what they need to do to better themselves and to be the best that they can be. Is that a, a book that you really gleaned uh, a lot from? Yeah, I think um, all of the Brené Brené Brown books were unbelievable. Really, um, the, the Daring Greatly was probably the first one that I read. And I think when when you when you talk to a lot of people, particularly if you if you relate it back to sport, that they see being vulnerable as a weakness. In fact, you know whether that's sport or whether that's life. And I think kind of just opening up that kind of mindset of it's actually a strength to be vulnerable because from that point you can actually have some honest and open conversations and you can work through that vulnerability with people around you and so she's got two or three books I think within that list that I've read um, or listened to on audible and the daring greatly one the and the courage to yeah finding the courage to be disliked almost is um really setting you out on your path for kind of living your own true life, isn't it really? And not based around what other people think. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson, I've read uh, the, the 12 um, chaos. I forget, I forget the, the actual, the title of his book, but uh, his stuff is 12, really the 12 rules for life. 12 rules for life. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's, that's fantastic stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, I read that quite a while ago now, but it was, uh, you know, and I'm actually just started his new one as well. I'm looking up there like it's on the shelf, but um, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, one that Danny's gone through a lot as well with all of his players and kind of, I think, again, just when you talk a lot of those books that are on the list, you know, the, the Jordan Peterson 12 Rules for Life, it's nothing to do with sport. Neither is um, Daring Greatly um, or The Courage to be Disliked. And none of those books are to do with sport necessarily. They're all to do with understanding yourself, bettering your own life, um, understanding what's going on in your own mind. And therefore, Normally, I would I would say happy happy person equals happy squash player, and then if you're happy generally, you're you're going to play well. And of course, there's the exception where you can play well out of anger or hurt or disappointment, but it generally doesn't last very long. the The best way to play well is to be happy, is to um, to sort of be content within your own personal life, and then let the squash come out and do the talking on the court. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Now, uh, just in terms of, you know, uh, you, you did mention 
uh, you've read a few books that, that helped you uh, on your way to, you know, maybe it was a, a big win or a big tournament win. Do you remember uh, like a, one of those occasions, like one book that you read that really sort of, uh, sort of guided you throughout, through a tournament? Uh, yeah. The one, the one that always springs to mind is the, is Chrissy Wellington's book. Um, I think it's called a life without limits and she's like the iron woman, iron man world champion. Mm-hmm. And she just, her autobiography was brilliant and I absolutely loved it. And she, she talks a lot about kind of, the physicality and mental pain that she would go through for, for her training. And as everybody knows, Ironman is, you know, potentially one of the hardest sports out there, just, just purely because of the length of time, if nothing else, and the training sessions that she would go through. And so I started to think about kind of my own training and the own ment- my own mental sort of depths that I could go to. And I think she, reading that book made me realize there was more that I could push out of myself mentally and therefore physically. Sometimes, you know, when you're in an awful lot of pain, the, the mental response to that pain is to want to quit. Yeah. And it's quite often the mental side that will stop you from doing something a long time before the body can actually give out. And that might be from pain when it comes to an you know an injury or you know training that's huge, isn't it? that's huge at the end of a game or a fifth game or you know when think when the chips are down you've got to tap into something don't yeah you? and when and when I always say sort of when you're playing someone who's of an equal skill slash physical level that's where that old saying of you know it's 80 percent mental comes from like at the end of the day if I go down and play a club player at my club um doesn't matter how mentally strong he is he's probably not going to beat me but if 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 I play someone who's the same level as me squash wise and perhaps physically then it comes down to the mental side who can last the longest who's the most mentally strong who can hold their concentration for longest and that's where I honestly feel like that's where I came through a lot, a lot of the matches and big titles that I won. It was you're playing someone who's clearly as equally talented as you when it comes to hitting a squash ball and potentially getting a squash ball back physically. But it's who can concentrate for the longest, who believes in themselves the most, who can keep pushing when it gets really, really tough and really, really hard physically. Um so yeah, talking about Chrissy Wellington was just literally about realizing I had more to go from a mental perspective. And there's just a story in her book where I say just a story, but she talks about how she worked. She was so tired in an Ironman race that she couldn't feel her legs anymore. And so I remember playing Nicole in the KL Open, I think it was um, semi-final and was really tired. You know, with Nicole, you always had to have a word with yourself before you stepped on court about how much pain you were willing to go through um, because you knew it was going to, there was going to come a point where you wanted to quit because she would just keep getting the ball back. And that point arrived where it was really tough and I was hanging on for dear life and my lungs are screaming and my legs are screaming. And, and I just remember thinking I can still feel my legs. If my legs are screaming, I can still feel them. So you've got more to go. And that sort of story is that it, it felt like at the time it got me over the line because I was able to push on rather than kind of putting in a boast when I needed to play a straight drive. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, that's awesome. I mean, that, that's so true. If you can feel your legs, you still got more to go, right? Yeah. So that, that, that's great stuff. Yeah, I'll, be, I'll use that tomorrow. It, uh, hopefully won't have to, but uh, yeah, yeah. I'll remember that one. But now, uh, now I know... Uh, you've been working with Joelle uh, King of late and uh, she just played in PSA tour finals and it, she looked really good there in their first few matches. And uh, she, then she lost in the, the semifinal, I think to Norhan. Uh, so just how, uh, first of all, how, uh, how did that partnership uh, come about and uh, how are things going uh, uh, these days with, with Joelle? Yeah. Um, I mean, so Joelle kind of literally, before I'd even retired, I announced my retirement. And I think the day after she texted me and said, can we grab a coffee? And, you know, as with all other girls, I wasn't super close with, with any of them on tour really. But I thought my first reaction was, oh my gosh, what, like, what have I done? What does she want to talk to me about? And um, she, I still had two events to play um, or I'd just maybe finished the Manchester open. I had the British open to play and she just sat, you know, I, I had a chat with her and she said, I, 
you know, I, I knew as soon as you retired that I wanted to kind of work with you and pick your brain and wanted you, to, wanted you to be part of my team and would you be willing to? And I sort of was taken a bit by surprise because I hadn't really thought about that side of things. I still had a tournament left to play and sort of said, well, yeah, I'm definitely open to the idea. Let's have a conversation kind of once my retirement has come and got like come and I've settled into it a little bit. So we did. It took a few months and, um, you know, I was busy. She was busy. And I think we picked up probably later that year in 2019. And I don't I don't think um, I don't think it's fair to say that I'm her coach because she she lives in Bristol and she trains with Hadrian Stiff, who's All right. set up down there. Um, she wanted me as part of her team to kind of just add a little bit to uh, to complement to that. And probably the last few months, we've done a little bit more um, as things have opened up and she's got herself like in a really good place physically and mentally. And um, she came up, she comes up and spends a few days and I give her some feedback on kind of my take. And then, and then we speak a lot when it comes to, you know, kind of just, discussing discussing tournaments and game plans and things like that and that's that's where I think for her at being at the age that she is and the ranking that she's she is um that I can probably help the most um having played a lot of the girls that she's playing yeah I, I think you I mean you you make just from my point of view you make a really good fit uh, in terms of that side of things uh, and I just and I noticed in the match with Norham because she it was close yeah, and then, to me, and this is just my observation, and when the when things got really, really tough, it, it, that's when Norhan sort of just took it. Yeah, and it, it, uh, and it just seems to me that Joelle, she's a very, she's a strong girl. She's very athletic, uh, and if she could just get to that point where she could not get angry or anything, but just sort of <laughs> get, get you know power through those moments. Yeah. Uh, because that's what I think was the difference there in that. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an absolute fine line, isn't it? At the end of the day, when it comes to playing someone who, you know, maybe a little bit more like myself, when I used to be on court, I, I'm not trying to make Joelle into the player that I was because that's not her personality. She, while I absolutely agree when you play someone who is mentally tough and mentally strong like Nuran is that, you need to have an element of being able to stand up to them. How you stand up to someone is very different for an individual, one individual to the next. Mm-hmm. And um, what what my job is is to help Joelle figure out how she's going to stand up to Noran in her way. And you know, there's there's several ways that you can do that as a player. I know for me, it would have been to get feisty back, of course, because that's that's who I was and how I played. And I didn't I didn't like um, to feel like I wasn't the one that was on the front foot and wasn't the one dictating. But that's not going to work for everybody. And some people need to play calm. Some people need to play fired up. Some people need to play with relaxation. Um, it's totally individual. And that's that's what I'm finding out is the hard bit of a coach. You, you've got to coach the individual and not, you know, it's not about trying to make people, well, that worked for me. So that's what you've got to do because it's not going to, it's not going to work and you're just going to make people worse. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it was a good, it was a great match. It just seemed, it seemed to me like sort of there at the end, it got a little bit, she got a little bit tentative and Norhan just sort of played the way she, she plays and it kind of ended that way. Yeah, and at the end of the day, yeah, like Nuran played great and she won the yeah. event. I mean, she's yeah. like clearly playing playing really well. And that's she looked very fit. Very, very yeah. fit. Yeah, she did. And she was getting a lot of balls back at the front of the court all week. You know, she she beat everyone that week. You know, you don't beat Shabini in the pool and mm. then um, you know, kind of Joelle, who was playing really well, and then Hania in the final. So it's uh, it's credit to her, and that's that's what you you know that's what you're looking for. I think I said I've said it a couple of times in the lead up to the worlds. Like you're looking for someone to, you know, Shabini's got such a lead when it comes to the world number one, but notoriously in the women's, there's always been kind of like a a steady number two. So the number one, like whether it was you know kind of Nicole and Rachel or Natalie Grinham for a while, or kind of there was always Fitzy and. Michelle Martin, there was always a world number one. There was also there was always a pretty close world number two. And they and they were always pretty separated from the rest of the group. And that's what I feel like is missing on the women's tour. So even for a period, you know, Nicole was world number one, I was world number two. And it was pretty standard that you two would play most of the finals against each other. And then Renim 
you know, put her head in the mix and then there was maybe two or three and a bit of a transition and then Nicole dropped off a bit and Shabini came in the mix and there's really that normal, normal for the women's game to have that one and two, I think probably in the men's as well. But who at the moment is looking like they're going to put the head above the kind of parapet and go, I'm up here, I'm chasing the Shabini down and you guys are all like obviously great and I need to respect you, but I'm going that way for the one spot and I'm not looking down for the three to three to eight spot. Yeah. And they're all like, they all look like they're just trying a bit. Like, Sobi has a great event. Position. Yeah. Yeah. Sobi has a great event. Noran has a great exciting. event. Anir has a great It's really exciting, isn't it? There's yeah. So many yeah. Good possibilities there, but absolutely, uh, uh, Norel Shavini is, uh, you know, she's, she's ahead of everybody, but it was a good yeah. start for, for Norhan there. Yeah, definitely. So it's it's exciting on one hand. It's also when you're working with certain players, you you want them to push push and get ahead of the pack. You know, you don't want to see people just kind of having one great event and then losing in the quarters or the semis or whatever. I mean, we don't mean to do it, obviously, but that's when the best players will put their head above above and go, I'm going after, you know, Shabini or whatever. So, yeah, it'd be interesting yeah. to see whether Nuran's going to gonna go for that in the next year or so. It sort of reminds me, um, I think I, I saw you play in Dubai the last time they had the tour finals here. And, uh, yeah. and I remember uh, watching Nor, Norham play and she, she lost every match. I think she lost every match to love. And I just thought just watching her, she's, she's very, very good. I, there's just, it was all mental at that time, I think for her. Yeah, absolutely. That was the the last World Tour Finals, wasn't it, in uh, in Dubai? And she, I remember as well that being a, a particularly sort of bad period for her, where she'd got up the rankings quite quickly, and then seemingly, yeah, couldn't win a game. And it's been impressive on the back of that to come back and win a British Open, and then get to World Number One, and then. Um, obviously now kind of win a world series I think you know aside from kind of the majors I'm you know like the the I say the majors of British Open World Championships I think you've got to include US Open maybe 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 Hong Kong as well you know World Series finals is up there because you don't get an opportunity to play the top eight players in the world and if you can come through that as champion for that week you know you're playing really really high level squash so I, I know I'm super proud of the World Series championships that I won and mm. it'll give Noran a heck of a lot of confidence, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. Now, uh, you've been great with your time, Laura, but before you go, I just want to, there's been a lot of chat and a lot of talk about uh, officials and players bantering with, with officials. And it just seems, uh, at least on social media, people are, are just saying it, it just seems like it's, you know, it's, it's, worth, it's, it's at its highest, uh, worst level. <laughs> Than, than it's ever been and and it's kind of ironic because you know players have the opportunity now to to use the video referee but it doesn't seem to quieten things down uh although uh, i thought both finals were really really clean cleanly played not a word hardly in the women's final and the men's final was just a uh, you know a few question you know, got both Mustafa and Mohammed questioned the official, but it nothing came. You know, there there was no whining or anything. But you know, it just seems like uh, there's a bit more of that these days. Do you what What's your take on on that? And do you think the there should be a line that's drawn, like a, a stronger line, when it comes to players arguing with officials? Um. Oh, I, I would the, that last bit sort of threw me a bit because I think that the players arguing with the officials comes from frustration when you don't know what decision is going to come. Mm. Um, there was I actually think the refing, yeah, when they started working on the refing and the, let's say the lines to the ball, I felt like I let's even towards the end of my career, right, there was there was a fairly good understanding of if you leave a line to the left. Um, and the, and the player chooses not to take it, let's say on the backhand wall, um, you know, if you leave a line to the left and you choose not to take that and you go to the player, you start to understand very quickly that it was a no let. And so you started to make every effort to go to the ball. The issue is that there seems to be decisions that you, that you're just 
really not sure about and you you know literally and literally you're at home thinking that could be a stroke and it's a no let and you're you're just not fully understanding why so there's a couple of things I guess there's a little bit of improvement needed and a little bit of clarity in the rules because as a player you want a video review you want to see it back on the screen and you want to understand why the decision has been given whether the decision is in agreement with yourself or not, you want to understand it. And that's what creates less arguments, the understanding. And I think there's a couple of things that don't help. One is that the commentators that are commentating on the game give a complete in-depth analysis onto why it should definitely be a stroke or a no-let or whatever. It should, this is definitely going to be that decision. And then it comes on the screen and, and it's not that decision. Yeah. I don't think that that particularly helps. I think that the commentators are obviously trying to fill a gap in terms of time, but that gap maybe could be filled with explanation, listening to the referee communicate with the video referee decision and at least give an understanding like they do in rugby as to why yeah. that decision is being given. Um, I also think that they should under, they, they definitely should not be slowing it down into slow-mo has a, has a complete effect of shrinking the core and making everything look like a stroke. And in my opinion, the refs are professional enough to be able to make a decision. They quite often just need another look at it in full speed. And the yeah. only reason that they should ever need to slow it down is if they're trying to look for contact on backswing or follow through right. and that's it. So if I was refing a game and I was like, oh, that all happened a little bit quickly. I didn't quite, oh, can I just have another look at that? Mm. Don't slow it down. Just look at it as it is in real time. Replay that three or four times if needed, but don't slow it down because even I find myself going real time stroke and then they slow it down and the swings like this and the players just out. And then that's what you feel in real time isn't slow-mo. You feel it in super, super fast forward, if anything else. So... Yeah, that would be a couple of my points really on on how they could probably take a little bit of of kind of the controversy out of it and and the discussion, if nothing else. Yeah, for sure, I I, I completely agree with you there. It it and actually, the, both those finals were were really well. I mean, in terms of officials and the players, uh, there there was really nothing uh, between them. Uh, there was no arguments. Uh, the calls were pretty good. The yeah. the officials, as you mentioned, uh, when they didn't know right away, they they went to that. Can I just see it again? That yeah, that, uh, yeah. which seemed to really help. I think. Yeah, definitely, and and also that that event was unique, and I don't know how many people knew it, but you know, the UK the UK put Egypt on the red list, so which meant that you had a pretty hefty quarantine to come back. So you had no no officials from the UK out there. Um, oh, you had yeah, no yeah. no PSA staff, nothing. It was the it was run completely sort of on its own. And I think um they did a fantastic job with the support that they had. And you know, you would hardly have even been able to tell from any of the streaming or the commentary or anything like that. The commentators were in England and the event was in Cairo. And yeah. you know, the ref there was no international refs there, I think, apart from one. So, you know, it was it was maybe not quite up to the refereeing level as well that we're used to, just mm. experience-wise. Um, so there's there's that factor to play in, which is just another thing to blame. COVID on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, uh, well, Laura, you, uh, you've been really uh, awesome uh, with your time and really enjoyed chatting with you uh, today. Uh, just in terms of the book, uh, can you tell us again uh, where we can find it and what, uh, give me a hand with the Kindle because I got to get it on, on uh <laughs> yeah. yeah, so uh, the book is available on my website. Um, it's in paperback and hardback on my website, and all the hardbacks are signed slash personalized if, if they want. Okay. It's also available um, globally on Amazon, which is just paperback, but obviously that helps with shipping costs if you are kind of outside of particularly the UK or Europe. They've got a partnership with Nickel Squash where they've they've um, ordered a, um, books to be shipped to them directly. So it's like reduced shipping costs to order. If you're in United States, possibly Canada is an option. Um, and yeah, as far as I was aware, it was avail available globally on Kindle. Um, so if you're struggling with that, like you know, I'm definitely going to look into that with the publisher. And hopefully towards the end of uh, mid, well, like mid-July, we're looking to release the audiobook on Audible as well. And I'm okay. really excited for that. It's just taken a long time to finalize the format. Is that Audible in your is, voice? 
Yes, Audible is a complicated. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, it's a complicated platform in terms of getting it on there, but I've recorded the audio book. So if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then you'll enjoy the audio book. But the great thing about it is, is that, well, I, I personally think is that the book is got guest chapters for anyone who didn't know that. So there's chapters from uh, DP, my coach, Mark, my physical trainer, Danny, um, my psychologist, my manager, my physio, um, all on like their take on my career and what they, why they thought I was kind of, you know, as professional and made it to the top of the game. And they've all, I think, bar again, blaming COVID one or two have all recorded their own chapter as well. So you get to put a bit of a voice to the, to the name. So you might even want to hang on and get the audio book. I when think it comes I'm going to go audio. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah I'll, get, I'll do both. I, I definitely want the Kindle, but uh, so that's it. Laura, uh, it's uh, lauramassaro.com. Is it? lauramassaro.co.uk is the website. Okay. Okay. And all the links are available through kind of my Twitter and Instagram uh, profile, Facebook profile as well. So if, if you're struggling to find the web, I mean, it should just pop up, but if you're struggling to find the website, you can also get the link through any of my social media platforms as well. Okay. Well, uh, many thanks, uh, Laura, all the best and uh, all the best with your, with your pregnancy. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, this is your first child. So uh, c- congratulations with that and uh, hope to do this again uh, sometime down the road. Great. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it. Many thanks to Laura Massaro, episode 196 in the books. Really appreciate her time. And uh, again, check out the book. You can pick it up at lauramassaro.co.uk. Now, upcoming on the podcast uh, this week, we're we're really hoping to have on Gina Kennedy. Uh, she's just uh, finished in Washington. She lost in the final, went in as a wild card. I'm not sure what happened there. I guess maybe her ranking points weren't quite quite up there but uh, she definitely deserved a spot in the draw and she proved that by getting all the way to the final beating every seed in her path on the way there and we're looking forward to uh, catching up uh, or to chatting with her and uh, after that uh, also we have another big one coming up I don't want to jinx that one because we haven't firmed it up and uh, you know history tells me uh, from past mistakes not to prematurely announce a guest so I will not do that uh, but uh, hopefully with any luck we'll have a, a big name uh, coming on to talk about uh, their recent uh, success on, on the tour so uh, not uh, and along with that uh, we've got some some coaching uh, pods coming up and some other interesting ones too so uh, now that summer uh, vacation is upon us hopefully the uh, the podcast will uh, generate a bit of momentum through that and get back on track we've been a bit slow lately getting out episodes uh, that's uh, due to uh, I think more of my uh, my work commitments uh, than anything else but we're hopefully going to get back on track here so and uh, as usual everybody I hope you're uh, getting out and playing some squash I think things are really uh, starting to open up in most places uh, around the world these days I know I've been able to get out and uh, really enjoying it as always uh, keep well stay fit stay healthy and all the best to your families keep on listening please share the pod uh, on your social media with everybody comment give us a like and uh, retweet or you know uh, share the content wherever you can so really appreciate you for that take care have a great day and we'll be back at you very soon uh, with gina kennedy goodbye now